This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. Card number 375, Tom Bernanski, Minnesota Twins. And card number 20T, Tom Bernanski, Cardinals. All right, fantastic. Two cards. And why are we talking about Tom this week? Bernanski was a request from listener Matt. And Matt had a great interaction with Tom Bernanski when he was a kid at Fenway Park. Matt would send letters to players and ask for signatures. The first one he got back was Tom Bernanski. Bernanski sent back a signed card and told Matt, come say hello at Fenway. So Matt did, and Bruno gave him a ball. So super nice guy to do that for a young fan. And Matt held on to a picture of him and Tom Bernanski for a long time. Bruno was a World Series champ and then was involved in an infamous trade that we've discussed on a previous episode. And so trigger warning here for Twins and Cardinals fans. Didn't go great for either set of of fans. There's a Sabre bio by Bill Nowlin, former Sabre vice president and author of more than 700 Sabre bios, worked on more than 50 Sabre books, just an amazing contributor to the Society for American Baseball Research. So thank you, Bill. Bernanski was also in RBI Baseball, so we will have a report from Brian later as well. But let's go to the front of 375, and we have very classic baseball card stance. Tom Bernanski in the batter's box. He's got the pinstripe twins kit. This uniform looks great. Got the black or navy undershirt. I feel like really looks good here. Black batting gloves. Really thick eye black, too. Got a mustache going there, too. You can actually see fans behind him in what is probably a spring training setup. He has wristbands on, but those are not Mims bands, so there is no caricature of Tom Bernanski's mustache on those wristbands. Those are generic store-bought. I imagine him like buying those at a grocery store. Now let's go to the back of 375. Tom Bernanski, outfielder. Height 6'4", weight 216. Right-handed batter and thrower. Drafted by the Angels in the first round in 1978. Born August 20th, 1960 in Covina, California, with a home in Wyzetta, Minnesota. Bruno was born in Covina, which is a city in L.A. County. Covina has a nickname, One Mile Square and All There. At least when it was founded, it was only (laughs) one square mile. That was back in 1901. Now it is seven square miles at about 51,000 people. About 20,000 when Brunanski was born. His parents, Joe and Margaret, Margaret went by Ray Brunanski, were East Coasters. Joe was from Pennsylvania and Ray was from Delaware. Joe played baseball and football at Duke University. He later played both semi-professionally, according to Sports Illustrated. And he was a Class D catcher and a two-way lineman. He would have played professional football for the Chicago Cardinals, if he hadn't been blacklisted for competing in an unsanctioned all-star game. So Joe was a pretty good athlete. He later coached football at Duke, then Elon College, and later at the University of Delaware. Joe decided to take a, a new job, move on from football coaching. He got a job with Avon, and they offered him a management position. He could either take a job in New York or Pasadena. And so the Brudanskis moved out west. Tom had two older siblings, older brother Joe and a sister Joni, but Tom was the first born in California. While he was born in Covina, the family lived in West Covina, 
I always like when a city with a directional is larger than the original city that it is named for. West Covina was one of the fastest growing cities in the United States in the 1950s. It grew from 5,000 to 50,000 people from 1950 to 60 when Tom was born. Now it's over 100,000 people. And West Covina was the setting for the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and the pinnacle of filmmaking, parentheses, featuring Keenan and Kel, Good Burger, was also filmed in West Covina. Tom was an A student and a star baseball and football player at West Covina. He was a wide receiver and re was recruited by Bill Walsh to play at Stanford. He did have a recruiting visit to Stanford. While there, he met a quarterback who was a year younger, who keeps showing up on this podcast. That quarterback was John Elway, who would go on to play at Stanford, play for the Yankees organization, etc. So Tom could have been one of John Elway's wide receivers. And so he signs a letter of intent to play both baseball and football at Stanford. But then June 1978, the California Angels make him their number one pick in the draft, number 14 overall. Two picks after another good wide receiver, Kirk Gibson. The Angels later told Tom that every visit he made to Stanford cost them $10,000. They did not <laughs> want to lose him to college, so they kept upping their offer. Because Tom grew up not far from Angel Stadium, he was a fan and had visited the stadium as a kid, and he was invited to a game and met the owner, Gene Autry, and former president, Richard Nixon, and that was part of what convinced him to sign with the Angels. That and a $92,000 signing bonus. Huge signing bonus for, for that time. He really used that Stanford option to his advantage. Another 1988 Tops player that we'll get around to someday, Nick Asaski was picked three picks after Tom. He got a $40,000 signing bonus. Most high schoolers in the first round were around forty to 50000 but because Tom had that back pocket, he could go, go to Stanford and walk away from playing baseball for the time being. He was able to negotiate a higher signing bonus. So good bit of business by Tom. And that summer, he goes to Idaho Falls, which I've just visited recently, Dave. It's a nice little town. Were there any Tom Bernanski plaques there? Any memories of his time I, I there? I saw no memorializations of Tom Bernanski's time at Idaho Falls, but there should have been. He hit 332 that first season with a 458 on-base percentage, six homers, 17 steals, and 45 RBIs in 48 games. He got promoted to Salinas next, hitting 270 and 23 home runs and 20 steals, although he was caught 15 times. Aggressive base runner in his early years. In 1980, he spent most of the year at AA El Paso, but then got promoted to AAA Salt Lake City at the end of the season. So doing very well in the minors, moving station to station, that 1980 year, he hit a combined 325 with 25 homers and 105 RBIs. And the Angels thought he was a potential superstar. The only question was when, not if he would get there. So 1981, he's not yet 21 years old at the beginning of the season. And he made the Angels right out of spring training. He gets a hit in his first game against Seattle on opening day. Two days later, he gets his first home run a two-run shot off of Floyd Bannister. Two at-bats later, he hits his second home run off Bannister. But after that quick start, he got only two hits in his next 23 at-bats. He's hitting only 152 through 11 games, and he gets sent down to the minors. Of his five hits in that first season, three of them were home runs. He plays great at AAA, hitting 332, 
but he also tore ligaments in a thumb, which limited his playing time. Going into the 1982 season, this Angels outfield was pretty stacked. Yeah, you had Brian Downing, you've got Fred Lynn and Reggie Jackson, so it's not like he's going to start right away. He starts the season at AAA Spokane, was only hitting 205 through 25 games, but there's a fun fact on the card about his minor league career that Tom hit 77 home runs in 446 minor league games from 1978 to 1982. It leaves me to do some math here. It's not the funnest fact, but the 77 home runs in what would be about three full major league seasons of games. So it's a pretty decent clip. However, there's also a this way to the clubhouse about 1982, and that was that Tom was traded by the Angels to the Twins with Mike Walters for Doug Corbett and Rob Wilfong, May 12th, 1982. Missing from that note, the Angels also sent $400,000 along with Bruno and Walters. Walters pitched in 46 games combined in 83 and 84 and was out of baseball by 1985. Corbett had a rough year in 1982, but pitched in relief for five seasons for California. Wilfong was a backup infielder for five years, largely replacement level. The day after this trade, Bernanski is in the Twins lineup, and this is a bad Twins team. They lost 102 games, which explains why a AAA outfielder is able to slot immediately into the starting lineup. But it was a young team with a, a lot of good potential. You have Kent Herbeck and Gary Gaetti also in their rookie seasons. Frank Viola, also a rookie, but he only went 4-10 and with a 5.21 ERA, so he had a little bit of time to develop. Tom got hits in his first five games. He played some center field, but mostly right field, and appeared in 127 games, hitting 272, 20 homers, 30 doubles, only 46 RBIs, so not driving in a lot of runs, but this is a Again, a pretty bad team, not a lot on base ahead of him. And he led the team with a 377 on base percentage. The highlight to me for that 1982 season, though, David, was that he had two inside the park homers, one when Lou Pinella lost a ball in the ceiling of the Metrodome. A lot of high fly balls, when the outfielder looks up, they would just lose it in the great white expanse of the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome roof. And you can see Lou Pinella look up, just kind of throw his hands up, and then the ball bounces behind him. By the time it's hit the ground, Bruno's all the way around third. The second was an inside-the-park Grand Slam, which was the first in Twins history. This is on a list of the top 100 Metrodome moments. This was number 82, Tom Bernanski's inside-the-park Grand Slam. So we'll have a video of that in the show notes. Those 20 home runs started an eight-year streak by Bernanski of 20 home run seasons, and he played very good defense as well. He led right fielders in the American League with 17 runs saved and was valued at 5.6 war, the second best performance by a rookie position player in the whole 1980s behind Alvin Davis. And Davis won Rookie of the Year that year in 1984, but Bernanski didn't get a single vote. Yeah, the 1982 Rookie of the Year voting, the top three were Cal Ripken, Kent Herbeck, and Wade Boggs. All had really good seasons, but now when we look back, the defensive stats put Bruno ahead. Cal and Kent Herbeck had better home run and RBI numbers, which probably explains some of the votes in their favor. Also because Herbeck and Bernanski were on the same team, voters for Herbeck might have just neglected to include one of his teammates to try to get their guy ahead. Yeah, it's always a disadvantage when you've got two guys from the same team going for awards like that. 
1983, Bruno's average slips to 227, but his power ticked up 28 homers and 82 RBIs. The Twins team is a little bit better. They only lost 92 games that year. 1984 was the season, if we recall, that Jim Eisenreich retired, and it opened up a spot for another youngster. Luckily, there was a guy named Kirby Puckett who they could bring in that year. And Brunanski had what looks like another typical Tom Brunanski season, 254, 32 home runs, 85 RBIs. That 32 home runs, he did that again in 87, but it was a career high. And this season, the team took another step forward. They hovered a few games over 500, which was good enough to challenge the Royals for the division lead into September. And Brunanski helped keep that hope alive in August with a big month hitting 11 home runs. And the team finished the season 81 and 81, which brought some high hopes into the 85 season. But through 62 games, the team is under 500. They're eight games under, and they fire manager Billy Gardner, bring in Ray Miller. And one of the only Twins players who was performing was Brunanski, who hit 329 in April and 320 in May. His average dropped a little bit in June. So he was only hitting 265 at the All-Star break, but he did have 19 home runs, which earned him a spot on the All-Star team. He was the only Twins player to make the All-Star game at the Metrodome. He gets a standing ovation when he is announced. And David, his mustache looks kind of funny here. It looks a little bit too little. In earlier pictures, his mustache goes kind of down around his mouth. This one like just barely covers the top lip. I don't know. It just looks a little funny. Bruno had an uneventful at bat in the all-star game he came right after that phil bradley strikeout and damaso garcia getting thrown out in the eighth inning there's a huge cheer again from the crowd but he grounds out to end the inning the second half of the season he had only 213 with eight homers finished with 27 home runs for the season and a career high 90 rbis the twins though disappoint finishing with only 77 wins 1986 was another disappointing season they're 21 games under 500 in September when they fire Ray Miller. So this is not a good decade for Twins coaches. Bernanski again had a good first half of the season, hitting 274 with 18 homers, and another bad second half of the season, hitting 231 the second half with five home runs. The Twins brought in Tom Kelly as the manager, and he went 12-11 and 11 to close out the season, the Twins finishing in sixth place ahead of only the Mariners. It's rough when only the Mariners are you know, losing consistently 100 games. And, well, we, we beat out the Mariners. But going into the 1987 <laughs> season, Tom Kelly, he's only 36 years old, this young Tom Kelly. I can't think of him being young, but he was one of the youngest managers in baseball. And he's trying to keep the game fun for his team. Sports Illustrated said that the Twins could contend if they improved their dismal pitching. In the same issue, Sports Illustrated projected that the AL West would be close and would be won by a team with 87 wins and that Minnesota would be around 500. They also said that Cleveland would win 94 games and Dan Pasqua would win the home run title. So not all of their projections were correct, but the Twins one was, was pretty close. They were around 500. They only won 85 games, which was actually good enough to finish two games ahead of the Royals and win the AL West. They held first place from June 10th through the end of the season, never really running away with the division, but never losing the lead. Yeah, it was a great season by Frank Viola. Burt Blylevin was pretty good. Of course, Juan Berenguer was there. 
Berenguer ate up a lot of innings, and he was a reliable setup man for Jeff Reardon. On offense, they got solid seasons from Puckett, who was their only all-star, Herbeck and Gaetti. Those three, along with Bernanski, combined for 125 of the team's 196 home runs. Bernanski again hits 32, hitting 259, driving in 85. He was really consistent, always over 20 home runs and somewhere between 75 and 90 RBIs. Despite that power, they were outscored by opponents over the course of the season by 20 runs. They were 29 and 52 on the road, but won nearly 70% of their home games, which raises again the specter about the mysterious home field advantage at the at the Metrodome. Wasn't that Mike Henneman who made that audacious claim? <laughs> um, and then there was the <laughs> yeah. guy who worked at the Metrodome who claimed that he was the guy turning on the fans. I think that those fans were required to keep the dome filled so that it did not collapse. So there was <laughs> a reason for the fans. There were giant fans. Whether or not they led to this 70% home winning percentage is another question. It also leads me to question why the Twins didn't win the World Series every year. Maybe the next year they won 0% of their road games. The Twins make the playoffs and take on the team with the best record in baseball, the the 98-win Detroit Tigers. This ALCS also marked the start of the Homer Hankey a very classic technique in fan culture, waving around a hanky, a towel, or other cloth to really just improve the visibility of the crowd and to strike fear into the heart of the enemy. Yeah, nothing like a hanky to really just, it's an intimidating thing. The Star Tribune, the Minnesota Star Tribune, handed out over 2 million of these white hankies over the course of the playoffs. Initially, the Twins organization thought that this could be a distraction for the players, but they eventually became a staple of the Twins. So anytime the Twins are in a pennant run or a playoff situation, you see the Homer Hankies come out. Bruno had a huge series. He got at least one hit, run, and RBI in each of the first three games. In game four, he was walked twice but didn't get a hit. And then in the decisive game five, he went three for five, with a double and a home run in the ninth off Mike Henneman. For the ALCS, Bruno hit 412, two homers, four doubles, nine RBIs, a 1.524 OPS for the ALCS in this unexpected run to the World Series. And as we talked about in the Juan Berenguer episode, the team returned to the Metrodome after winning Game 7, and they the team was exhausted. They figured a few thousand people might greet them, and 50,000 people showed up. What a playoff series for Bruno, number 24, Tom Brunetsky. They introduce Brunanski. The crowd goes from just wild cheers to this what sounds like a boo, and it's just them saying, Bruno, really an amazing atmosphere at the Metrodome with all of these fans who just came out. And after this improbable run to the World Series, and you see 50,000 people, the whole city's ready for it. And you know, they have to win that World Series, right? It couldn't go any other way. This would be the first World Series played indoors. The first World Series games 
played indoors, were played at the Metrodome in 1987. The day of game one, Princess You Got the Look peaked in popularity at number two. And right as the music starts, it has a line that's a spoken word line that says, boy versus girl in the World Series of Love. It's all inevitable that the Twins are going to win. You know, it just goes to seven games. So the inevitable victory would have to wait a little bit and add a little bit of drama. Yeah, the Twins won the first two at home. They lost all three in St. Louis. But that home dome advantage was undeniable. They returned to Minnesota on the verge of elimination. Bernanski scores the go-ahead run and drives in another in a Game 6 win of 11-5. to And in Game 7, he scored two runs in a 4-2 to victory. For the series, he went only 5-for-25, but he drove in two runs and scored five. And really... He had been there through the ups and downs of this team and finally reached the heights. He said of the early days, it was like having a triple-A club in the majors. If they didn't sweep us, they considered it a bad series. We took our lumps and it hurt, but it was a learning experience. Five years later, we've come full circle. And they did. They made the pinnacle by winning the World Series and then reached the next pinnacle, which was earning a spot in RBI baseball. And for that, we will go to Brian. We are back in the RBI corner. Welcome back, Brian. And we're here to talk again about the 1987 Twins. Great. Thanks. Great to be here. The Twins in RBI baseball. So first off, I want to invite everyone to go back through the archives and listen to the Juan Berenguer episode for the Berenguer Boogie. That was, I think, the first time that we might have tackled the Twins in RBI baseball. The Steve Lombardozzi episode as well. We talked about the Twins there. Just to recap, the Twins are a solid team with good power, good started pitching. Quite a bit of power, but they're very heavily right-handed um, and have a pretty weak bench. The only lefty starting hitter in the Twins lineup is Kent Herbeck. They do have a righty starter with great endurance and Burt Blylevin, and a lefty starter with good movement and Frank Viola, and a pretty strong bullpen. So you have good balance in the pitching staff. They're probably not a top-tier team, so I think we think of, besides the all-star teams, Detroit, Boston, and California as being the best teams in RBI baseball, but they're definitely part of that second tier, and given the power in starting pitching, you can absolutely win games with them. And how about Tom Bernanski? So this is a great opportunity to talk about the limitations of names in RBI baseball. So the RBI baseball naming conventions is to use only six characters. This is, you know, an 8-bit video restriction. They're able to use the actual names of the players when those fit into six characters. And sometimes you have like a first initial. But for, for names like Brunanski, it makes for some really entertaining ways in which it's displayed in the screen. So an example of this is Steve Lombardozzi is L-M-B-R-D-Z. Brett Saberhagen is S B. R-H-G-N. So, you know, when you're a kid, you're looking at these things and you're like, who are these guys? Oh, that's right. It's Saberhagen. It's just compressed. And then Kent Herbeck is H-R-B-E-K. So they're missing a vowel. But that's actually his name. Uh, it just looks like an RBI baseball name when it's written out. So Brunansky is B-R-N-S-K-Y. You kind of sound it out and it sounds like burn sky, like a burning man thing. So that's maybe the most notable thing about him in the game is that he has one of the better names. 
as a player, he might be the best batter on the Twins. Maybe not the most valuable since Herbeck is a lefty and the only lefty. He's the number five hitter, and he has the most power on the team. He's also not slow, so he could be a stolen base threat against tired pitchers. One things that one of the things that happens in RBI baseball is that velocity drops precipitously as pitchers get tired, and it becomes easier to steal bases where guys with maybe middling speed suddenly can get steals because the pitcher's only throwing 60 miles per hour. Brunanski is one of those players. He is a righty in a very righty-heavy lineup, but I think he's good enough where he'd be a starter on pretty much every team in RBI baseball in at least one of the batting slots. So you play him every time? Absolutely. I think outside of Kent Herbeck, who's the only lefty in the lineup, Brunanski might be the most essential player in the Twins lineup. So keep him in as the number five hitter, and you've got to use the other slots in the lineup to find a way to get lefties in. I think that that Brunanski and his mustache visible in many of his pictures is why I kind of associate Tom Bradansky with the brawny man of paper towels. <laughs> like his name on RBI baseball kind of looked like brawny and he had a mustache much like the brawny man. So I, I don't know. I was eight years old. Well, <laughs> fittingly, the way that he hits in RBI baseball is as a very brawny man with the most power in the Minnesota Twins. So it seems like those two things are fine to conflate. A brawny player, a brawny team, and always a brawny segment as part of the 1988 Tops podcast. So we appreciate it as always, and thank you, Brian. Thank you, guys. And we are back. So after the 1987 World Series win, we go into 1988, and will there be a repeat? That Twins team of 1987 had the lowest wins of any World Series champ with 85. They were looking to to upgrade some positions, including second base. And so after 14 games, we get a second card. That's right. We go to 20T in the traded set. And Tom Bernanski being sent to the Cardinals. The front of this card, Tom Bernanski is sitting on the ground in a butterfly position it looks like he's wearing a uniform top over top of his windbreaker with the red Cardinals hat on. His mustache is a little bit more full, so this is this is a better look than the All-Star. But I really don't think I've ever seen a baseball card where the player is sitting in a butterfly. Yeah, it's a good stretch. Got a stretch before you hit home runs. This is a real bright picture. And I think, to your point about this being an odd pose... I don't know how much time they had to take pictures after the trade to get this set completed because this trade took place during the 1988 season. So they probably didn't have a lot of shots. It's a good smile, but it's kind of an odd picture and not one that we've seen in the set thus far. Not sure exactly how to say this. Butterfly (laughs) pictures always increase the chance that you might have an unfortunate crotch shot so I think that the photographer has done a good sh- has done a good job here of obscuring the crotch with Bernanski's shin. But if we go to the back of 20T, we see the real news, and that is the this way to the clubhouse that Tom was traded by the Twins to the Cardinals in exchange for infielder Tom Herr, April 22nd, 1988. The Cardinals were looking for power after Jack Clark left the team after a big 1987. So they were looking for a power hitter. The Twins wanted a second base upgrade from Steve Lombardozzi, even after Lombardozzi had a huge World Series, and they wanted a left-handed bat at the top of their lineup. So the the two teams who had just played in the World Series make a trade, Tommy Herr in exchange for Tom Bernanski, trade your Toms, maybe traitor Tom, 
but Tommy Herr said that he cried on the airplane. The Twins players and fans weren't happy with this trade. Gary Gaetti said, I'll, I'll miss Tom Bernanski. It's like a cold shower and a slap in the face at the same time. Twitter friend of the pod, at Boblin Mavs, in response to a post about Bernanski said, when my daughter starts playing the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno from Encanto, I feel compelled to talk about Tom Bernanski and how bad the Tommy Herr trade was. So 34 mm-hmm. years on, this is still living rent-free in the minds of Twins fans. Tommy <laughs> Herr was okay in 86 games that he played in Minnesota, but his attitude was more what Twins fans had a problem with. He said he felt like an intruder and he wanted to leave. He spent some time on the DL and was traded after the season. But this Twins team was pretty good. They won 91 games. They improved on their 1987 performance, but they still finished 13 games behind the Oakland A's. Bernanski in St. Louis also wasn't super happy with the trade. He said, they told me I had been traded and I had three days to report to St. Louis. It was like, bam, right in the gut. I walked back to my locker and the guys knew something had happened. They said my face was white. Bernanski had spent six years in Minnesota. It was his new home. He was pretty comfortable there. And just like that, after winning a World Series, after playing a huge part in a playoff run, he's gone. Yeah, he was okay at the plate for St. Louis. 22 home runs, drove in 79 runs, which was 26 more than any other teammate on what was a very disappointing Cardinals team that season. The Cards only won 76 games. They finished fifth. And Bernanski's defense was pretty bad that season. It had declined through the years. Early in his career, he was solid. But by that point, his range was well below average in 1988. A negative 2.5 defensive war was the 12th worst performance in the 1980s. 1989, a similar season at the Cardinals. Bernanski hit 239 with 20 homers and 85 RBIs. Throughout 1982 to 89, he averaged 248, 26 homers and 79 RBIs. So solid offensively while his defensive skills had somewhat declined. 1990, 19 games into the season, The Cardinals were looking for bullpen help, and they sent Bernanski to Boston in exchange for Lee Smith. Bernanski said he was excited to go to Boston. In his career, he hit 293 with a 915 OPS at Fenway, so he was excited to go to a a good hitter's park. In his second game there, he went 5-for-5, homering twice, driving in seven runs. He had a really solid year for a good Boston team, hitting 267, 15 homers, and 71 RBIs. Boston's challenging for the AL East. And over the late stretch of the season, the last eight games, Bernanski had 12 RBIs and hit 400. Going into the final game of that season, the Red Sox were one game ahead of the Blue Jays. If Toronto wins, Boston loses, the teams are going to be tied. They'll have to play a game 163. Nobody wants that, especially in Boston. Bad luck in the playoffs. They don't want that. Bruno has a huge game in this final game against the Chicago White Sox. He goes two for three. He gets an RBI triple that was misplayed by a young Sammy Sosa. The next player up, Bernanski tries to steal home. He's taking a really long lead. The pitcher, Alex Fernandez, throws a pitch out to Carlton Fisk, catches Bernanski in a rundown. Fernandez throws the ball into left field, and Bruno takes home. So on the box score, it's marked as caught stealing, but safe on an error. So Bernanski scores with a the third run of the game, they go up 3 nothing, and the Red Sox are holding on to a 3-1 to lead in the ninth inning. Two outs, men on first and second. 
side, hooking toward the corner. Brunanski! He made the catch in the corner! A great catch by Tom Brunanski! And the Red Sox are the champions of the American League East in 1990! What a catch. Hard from the camera angle to tell if he actually held on. And many in the stadium didn't know for sure, although there were people just throwing their beers in the air like immediately. And so that's how you could probably tell. But Bernanski comes up with the ball. The out was called. The division is won. And the Red Sox make it to the ALCS, but are swept by the A's in four games. And Bernanski had only one hit in the ALCS. He re-signs with Boston in 1991 and 1992 and was okay. His average fell to 229 in 1991. He had 16 home runs as the Red Sox finished in second place. In 1992, he had a contract rider that said that if he played in 145 games, it would trigger a one-year extension for $3 million. And he played well. He hit 266 with 15 homers and 74 RBIs but he only played in 138 games and he was convinced that management held down his playing time to not trigger the extension, which given what we've seen from other, from other managers seems pretty likely the Sox finished last in the AL East that year with only 73 wins. He became a free agent and signed with Milwaukee in 1993, missing significant time with back injury and not being an everyday player hurt his productivity. He hit only 183 in 80 games He's still going in 1994, hitting 214 in 16 games before being traded back to Boston for Dave Valley. And kind of a last hurrah for his career. He hit two home runs in his first game back for, for the Red Sox and hit 10 home runs in 48 games in 1994 before the strike ended the season. And after that season, he was a free agent. He had an opportunity to return to Boston, but he had two young kids at the time and decided it was time to retire to be a full-time dad. So closing the book on Tom Bernanski, 14 years in the major leagues, 1,800 games, a 245 average with 271 home runs, 919 RBIs, and 1,543 hits, one all-star appearance, and one World Series ring. How about in retirement? He and wife Colleen, whose sister was married to Bernanski's teammate Dave Engel, had five kids. For a decade, Tom was just a dad. He said, I took the kids to school. I'd volunteer my time to work in the classroom. I helped coach Little League basketball teams. I was just involved. He coached Poway Little League in California from 1996 to 2003. He said he coached the parents more than the kids. Coaching the parents did not put too much pressure on their kids. And probably coming from a former professional, that's a a good lesson to learn. This is a guy who made it, and he can maybe tell you, Not all your kids are going to make it. In 2004, a friend, Darren Johnson, yes, the son of the Darren Johnson who coached Phil Bradley and turned him into a power hitter, this younger Darren Johnson asked Tom to help out at Poway High School. And Tom said he enjoyed it so much, it reignited his love of the game. He coached there from 2004 to 2009. And then he called the Twins asking if they needed some coaching assistance. They hired him to be a rookie league hitting coach. It was a short season and Tom enjoyed it. It wasn't too much time away from his family, but he liked it so much. He decided to try to work his way up the ladder. His kids were a little bit older now and he coached at A and double A, triple A. And then finally in 2013, he made the big leagues again. 
he was Ron Gardner's hitting coach. And then when Gardner was fired, he was Paul Molitor's hitting coach for a couple seasons. He was let go when Minnesota changed GMs in 2016. And at that time, he ends up joining the coaching staff of the University of St. Catherine in San Marcos, California, where his son was a pitcher. So he got to spend more time with one of his sons pitching on that St. Catherine's team. He was an assistant coach alongside Dom Johnson, another son of former hitting coach Darren Johnson. Brunanski and that 87 Twins team are still revered by Twins fans. Such an amazing run. And then for him to go to the Red Sox and make that catch. And it's referred to sometimes as the catch. Brunanski's a favorite among Twins and Red Sox fans. Maybe not so much among Cardinals fans because of what they gave up and the somewhat limited production that they got back. But he wasn't too bad in St. Louis. It wasn't really his fault that the trade was made. It's just business. But Brunanski from 82 to 89 was a really good power hitter. As evidenced from his portrayal in RBI baseball, he's a good player. Seventh most home runs between 82 and 89, 205. That's more than the guys who beat him in the AL Rookie of the Year race, Cal Ripken and Kent Herbeck. He had a 110 OPS plus, which is pretty good. But if he hit for a slightly better average, we see on this card he was hitting about 250, which was common for power hitters in the mid-80s. If he had hit for a slightly better average, taken a few more walks, it would have maybe kicked him up to the next level of stardom. He was remarkably consistent throughout the 80s, good for 20 homers and 80 RBIs. You could pencil him in for that every season. And really a key part of that, of the twins of the 80s, and that path from 102 losses as a rookie to the amazing World Series run in 1987. He still asked on, on occasion to come back to Fenway and talk about the catch. And he did so in 2010 when he was a hitting coach at Rochester. And the Red Sox gave him a bronzed glove. He threw out the first pitch. And friend of the show, Matt, who requested this card as a Red Sox fan, he sent that letter to Bruno as a youngster. Bruno said, come on by, say hello. Matt did. They took this photo. Matt held on to that photograph. And years later, in the 2010s, when the Twins played at Fenway, Matt went to a game. And he was able to flag down Bernanski and show him the picture. Bernanski is shocked. He can't believe that this guy would, you know, bring his photo from 20 plus years prior. But Matt was able to introduce one of his childhood heroes to his own daughter. And Bernanski later sent her an autographed photo and told her to root for the twins unless they're playing the Red Sox. And so, you know, sometimes on the show, we say it's you don't want to meet your heroes, but sometimes it's okay to meet your heroes. And it's sometimes acceptable to talk about Bruno. Absolutely acceptable to talk about Bruno today and a real touching story to meet a hero and to be able to relive that old memory and also pass it down to the next generation. Really admirable that Bruno had that love of the game reignited by teaching and coaching others. I I really like that kind of end to the story. So really good guy, good hitter, good mustache, good cards. So thank you, David. And thank you to you at home. If you ever gotten some bad news that felt like a cold shower and a slap in the face, we'd love to hear about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.